Chapter forty two Part one of Leviathan This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes Chapter forty two Part one Of Power Ecclesiastical for the understanding of power ecclesiastical, what and in whom it is, we are to distinguish the time from the ascension of our Saviour into two parts. One, before the conversion of kings and men endued with sovereign civil power, the other after their conversion. For it was long after the ascension before any king or civil sovereign embraced and publicly allowed the teaching of Christian religion. And for the time between, it is manifest that the power ecclesiastical was in the apostles, and after them in such as were by them ordained to preach the gospel, and to convert men to Christianity, and to direct them that were converted in the way of salvation. And after these the power was delivered again to others by these ordained, and this was done by imposition of hands upon such as were ordained, by which was signified the giving of the Holy Spirit, or Spirit of God, to those whom they ordained ministers of God, to advance his kingdom. So that imposition of hands was nothing else but the seal of their commission to preach Christ and to teach his doctrine, and the giving of the Holy Ghost by that ceremony of imposition of hands was an imitation of that which Moses did. For Moses used the same ceremony to his minister Joshua, as we read Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. Our Saviour, therefore, between his resurrection and ascension, gave his spirit to the apostles, first by breathing on them and saying, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, John chapter 20, verse 22, and after his ascension by sending down upon them a mighty wind and cloven tongues of fire, Acts chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and not by imposition of hands, as neither did God lay his hands on Moses, and his apostles afterward transmitted the same spirit by imposition of hands, as Moses did to Joshua, so that it is manifest hereby in whom the power ecclesiastical continually remained in those first times where there was not any Christian commonwealth, namely, in them that received the same from the apostles by successive laying on of hands. Here we have the person of God, born now the third time, for Moses and the high priests were God's representatives in the Old Testament, and our Saviour himself, as man, during his abode on earth. So the Holy Ghost, that is to say, the apostles and their successors, in the office of preaching and teaching, that had received the Holy Spirit, have represented him ever since. But a person, as I have shown before, chapter 13, is he that is represented, as of as he is represented, and therefore God, who has been represented, that is, personated, thrice, may properly enough be said to be three persons, though neither the word person nor trinity be ascribed to him in the Bible. St. John indeed saith, There be three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Luke chapter 5 verse 11. But this disagreeeth not, but accordeth fitly, with three persons in the proper signification of persons, which is that which is represented by another. For so God the Father, 
as represented by Moses, is one person, and as represented by his son, another person, and as represented by the apostles, and by the doctors that taught by authority from them derived, is a third person, and yet every person here is the person of one and the same God. But a man may here ask what it was whereof these three bore witness. St. John therefore tells us that they bear witness that God hath given us eternal life in his Son. Again, if it should be asked wherein that testimony appeareth, the answer is easy. For he hath testified the same by the miracles he wrought, first by Moses, secondly by his Son himself, and lastly by his apostles that had received the Holy Spirit, all which in their times represented the person of God, and either prophesied or preached Jesus Christ. And as for the apostles, it was the character of the apostleship in the twelve first and great apostles to bear witness of his resurrection, as appeareth expressly where St. Peter, when a new apostle was to be chosen in the place of Judas Iscariot, useth these words. Of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning at the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 21-22. Which words interpret the bearing of witness mentioned by St. John? There is in the same place mentioned another trinity of witnesses in earth. For he saith, There are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Ibid chapter 1 verse 8. That is to say, the graces of God's Spirit and the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which all agree in one testimony to assure the consciences of believers of eternal life, of which testimony he saith, He that believeth on the Son of Man hath the witness in himself. Ibid chapter 1 verse 10. In this trinity on earth, the unity is not of the thing, for the Spirit, the water, and the blood are not the same substance though they give the same testimony, but in the trinity of heaven. The persons are the persons of one and the same God, though represented in three different times and occasions. To conclude, the doctrine of the trinity, as far as can be gathered directly from the scriptures, is in substance this, that God, who is always one and the same, was the person represented by Moses, the person represented by his Son incarnate, and the person represented by the apostles. As represented by the apostles, the Holy Spirit, by which they spoke is God. As represented by his Son, that was God and man. The Son is that God, as represented by Moses, the high priests. The Father, that is to say, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that God. From whence we may gather the reason those names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the signification of Godhead are never used in the Old Testament, for they are persons, that is, they have their names from representing which could not be till diverse men had represented God's person in ruling or in directing under him. Thus we see how the power ecclesiastical was left by our Savior to the apostles, and how they were, to the end they might the better exercise that power, endued with the Holy Spirit, which is therefore called sometimes in the New Testament Paracletus, which signifieth an assister, or one called to for help, though it be commonly translated a comforter. Let us now consider the power itself, and what it was, and over whom. Cardinal Bellarmine, in his third general controversy, hath handled a great many questions concerning the ecclesiastical power of the Pope of Rome, and begins with this, whether it ought to be monarchical, aristocratical, or democratical, 
all of which sorts of power are sovereign and coercive. If now it should appear that there is no coercive power left them by our Savior, but only a power to proclaim the kingdom of Christ, and to persuade men to submit themselves thereunto, and, by precepts and good counsel, to teach them that have submitted what they are to do, that they may be received into the kingdom of God when it comes, and that the apostles and other ministers of the gospel are our schoolmasters, and not our commanders, and their precepts not laws, but wholesome counsels, then were all that dispute in vain. I have shown already in the last chapter that the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. Therefore neither can his ministers, unless they be kings, require obedience in his name. For if the supreme king have not his regal power in this world, by what authority can obedience be required of his officers? As my father sent me, so saith our Saviour, I send you. John chapter 20 verse 21. But our Saviour was sent to persuade the Jews to return, and to invite the Gentiles to receive the kingdom of his father, and not to reign in majesty, no, not as his father's lieutenant till the day of judgment. The time between the ascension and the general resurrection is called, not a reigning, but a regeneration, that is, a preparation of men for the second and glorious coming of Christ at the day of judgment, as appeareth by the words of our Saviour. You that have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones. Matthew, chapter 19, verse 28. And of St. Paul, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 15. And is compared by our Savior to fishing, that is, to winning men, to obedience, not by coercion and punishing, but by persuasion. And therefore he said not to his apostles he would make them so many nimrods, hunters of men, but fishers of men. It is compared also to leaven, to sowing of seed, and to the multiplication of a grain of mustard seed, by all which compulsion is excluded, and consequently there can in that time be no actual reigning. The work of Christ's ministers is evangelization, that is, a proclamation of Christ and a preparation for his second coming, as the evangelization of John the Baptist was a preparation to his first coming. Again, the office of Christ's ministers in this world is to make men believe and have faith in Christ. But faith hath no relation to, nor dependence at all upon, compulsion or commandment, but only upon certainty or probability of arguments drawn from reason, or for something men believe already. Therefore the ministers of Christ in this world have no power by that title to punish any man for not believing or for contradicting what they say. They have, I say, no power by that title of Christ's ministers to punish such. But if they have sovereign civil power by political institution, then they may indeed lawfully punish any contradiction to their laws whatsoever. And St. Paul, of himself and other the then preachers of the gospel, saith in express words, We have no dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 Another argument that the ministers of Christ in this present world have no right of commanding may be drawn from the lawful authority which Christ hath left to all princes, as well Christians as infidels. St. Paul saith, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 verse 20, and Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart as fearing the Lord. Ibid chapter 3 verse 22. This is spoken to them whose masters were infidels, and yet they are bidden to obey them in all things. And again, concerning obedience to princes, 
exhorting to be subject to the higher powers, he saith, that all power is ordained of God, and that we ought to subject to them not only for fear of incurring their wrath, but also for conscience sake. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 6. And St. Peter, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto the governors as to them that be sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13, 14, and 15. And again, St. Paul, put men in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, and to obey magistrates. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. These princes and powers whereof St. Peter and St. Paul here speak were all infidels. Much more, therefore, we are to obey those Christians whom God hath ordained to have sovereign power over us. How, then, can we be obliged to obey any minister of Christ if he should command us to do anything contrary to the command of the king, or other sovereign, representant of the commonwealth, whereof we are members, and by whom we look to be protected? It is, therefore, manifest that Christ hath not left to his ministers in this world, unless they be also endued with civil authority, any authority to command other men. But what, may some object, if a king, or a senate, or other sovereign person forbid us to believe in Christ? To this I answer that such forbidding is of no effect, because belief and unbelief never follow men's commands. Faith is a gift of God, which man can neither give nor take away by promise of rewards nor menaces of torture. And, if it be further asked, what if we be commanded by our lawful prince to say with our tongue we believe not? Must we obey such command? Profession with the tongue is but an external thing, and no more than any other gesture whereby we signify our obedience. And wherein a Christian, holding firmly in his heart the faith of Christ, hath the same liberty which the prophet Elisha allowed to Naaman, the Syrian. Naaman was converted in his heart to the God of Israel, for he saith, Thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 17-18 This the prophet approved, and bid him, Go in peace. Hear Naaman, believing in his heart, but by bowing before the idle women, he denied the true God in effect as much as if he had done it with his lips. But then, what shall we answer to our Saviour, saying, Whosoever denieth me before men, I will deny him before my Father, which is in heaven. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. This we may say, that whosoever a subject, as Naaman was, is compelled to in obedience to his sovereign, and doth it not in order to his own mind, but in order to the laws of his country, that action is not his, but his sovereign's nor is it he that in this case denieth Christ before men, but his governor, and the law of his country. If any man shall accuse this doctrine as repugnant to true and unfeigned Christianity, I ask him, in case that there should be a subject in any Christian commonwealth that should be inwardly in his heart of the Mohammedan religion, whether if his sovereign command him to be present at the divine service of the Christian church, and that on pain of death he think the Mohammedan obliged in conscience to suffer death for that cause, rather than to obey that command of his lawful prince. If he say he ought rather to suffer death, when he authorizeth all private men to disobey their princes in maintenance of their religion, true or false. If he say he ought to be obedient, then he alloweth to himself that which he denieth to another, contrary to the words of our Saviour, 
whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, that do ye unto them. Luke chapter 6, verse 31. And contrary to the law of nature, which is the indubitable everlasting law of God, do not to another that which thou wouldst not he should do unto thee. But what then shall we say of all those martyrs we read of in the history of the church, that may have needlessly cast away their lives? For answer hereunto, we are to distinguish the persons that have been for that cause put to death, whereof some have received a calling to preach and profess the kingdom of Christ openly. Others have had no such calling, nor more has been required of them than their own faith. The former sort, if they have been put to death for bearing witness to this point that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, were true martyrs. For a martyr is, to give the true definition of the word, a witness of the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, which none can be but those conversed with him on earth, and saw him after he was risen. For a witness must have seen what he testifieth, or else his testimony is not good. And that none but such can properly be called martyrs of Christ is manifest out of the words of St. Peter. Wherefore of these men, which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a martyr, that is a witness, with us of his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 21, 22 where we may observe that he which is to be a witness of truth of the resurrection of Christ, that is to say, of the truth of this fundamental article of Christian religion, that Jesus was the Christ, must be some disciple that conversed with him, and saw him before and after his resurrection, and consequently must be one of his original disciples, whereas they which were not so can witness no more, but that their antecessor said it, and are therefore but witnesses of other men's testimony, and are but second martyrs, or martyrs of Christ's witnesses. He that to maintain every doctrine which he himself draweth out of the history of our Saviour's life, and of the acts or epistles of the apostles, or which he believeth upon the authority of a private man, will oppose the laws and authority of the civil state, is very far from being a martyr of Christ, or a martyr of his martyrs. It is one article only, which to die for meriteth so honourable a name, and that article is this, that Jesus is the Christ, that is to say, he that hath redeemed us, and shall come again to give us salvation, and eternal life in his glorious kingdom, to die for every tenant that serveth the ambition or profit of the clergy, is not required, nor is it the death of the witness, but the testimony itself that make the martyr, for the word signifieth nothing else but the man that beareth witness, whether he be put to death for his testimony or not. Also he that is not sent to preach this fundamental article, but taketh it upon him of his private authority, though he be a witness and consequently a martyr, either primary of Christ or secondary of his apostles, disciples or their successors, yet is he not obliged to suffer death for that cause, because being not called thereto, it is not required at his hands, nor ought he to complain if he loseth the reward he expecteth from those that never set him on work. None, therefore, can be a martyr, neither of the first nor second degree, that have not a warrant to preach Christ come in the flesh, that is to say, none but such as are sent to the conversion of infidels. For no man is a witness to him that already believeth, and therefore needs no witness, but to them that deny, or doubt, or have not heard it. Christ sent his apostles and his seventy disciples with authority to preach. He sent not all that believed, and he sent them to unbelievers. I send you, saith he, 
as sheep amongst the wolves. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Not as sheep to other sheep. Lastly, the points of their commission, as they are expressly set down in the gospel, contain none of them any authority over the congregation. We have first that the twelve apostles were sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and commanded to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, 7. Now preaching in the original is that act which a crier, herald, or other officer useth to do publicly in proclaiming of a king. But a crier hath not right to command any man. And the seventy disciples are sent out as laborers, not as lords of the harvest. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And are bidden to say, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Ibid chapter 10, verse 9. And by kingdom here is meant not the kingdom of grace, but the kingdom of glory. For they are bidden to denounce it to those cities which shall not receive them, as a threatening, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for such a city. Ibid chapter 10, verse 11. And our Saviour telleth his disciples, that sought priority of place, their office was to minister, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Preachers, therefore, have not magisterial, but ministerial power. Be not called masters, saith our Saviour, for one is your master, even Christ. Ibid chapter 23, verse 10. Another point of their commission is to teach all nations, as it is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, or as in St. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Teaching, therefore, and preaching is the same thing, for they that proclaim the coming of a king must withal make known by what right he cometh, if they mean men shall submit themselves unto him, as St. Paul did to the Jews of Thessalonica, when three Sabbath days he reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must indeed have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus is Christ. Acts chapter 17, verse 2, 3. But to teach out of the Old Testament that Jesus was Christ, that is to say, King and risen from the dead, is not to say that men are bound, after they believe it, to obey those that tell them so, against the laws and commands of their sovereigns, but that they shall do wisely to expect the coming of Christ hereafter, in patience and faith, with obedience to their present magistrates. Another point of their commission is to baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. What is baptism? Dipping into water. But what is it to dip a man into the water in the name of anything? The meaning of these words of baptism is this. He that is baptized is dipped or washed as a sign of becoming a new man and a loyal subject to that God whose person was represented in old times by Moses and the high priests, when he reigned over the Jews, and to Jesus Christ, his Son, God and man, that hath redeemed us, and shall in his human nature represent his Father's person in his eternal kingdom after the resurrection, and to acknowledge the doctrine of the apostles, who assisted by the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, were left for guides to bring us into that kingdom, to be the only and assured way thereunto. This being our promise in baptism, and the authority of earthly sovereigns, being not to be put down until the day of judgment. For that is expressly affirmed by St. Paul, where he saith, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up to the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, 23, 24. 
it is manifest that we do not in baptism constitute over us another authority by which our external actions are to govern in this life, but promise to take the doctrine of the apostles for our direction in the way to life eternal. The power of remission and retention of sins, called also the power of loosing and binding, and sometimes the keys of the kingdom of heaven, is a consequence of the authority to baptize or to refuse to baptize. For baptism is the sacrament of allegiance of them that are to be received into the kingdom of God, that is to say, into eternal life, that is to say, to remission of sin. For as eternal life was lost by the committing, so it is recovered by the remitting of men's sins. The end of baptism is remission of sins. Therefore St. Peter, when they that were converted by his sermon on the day of Pentecost asked what they were to do, advised them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 And therefore, seeing to baptize is to declare the reception of men into God's kingdom, and to refuse to baptize is to declare their exclusion, it followeth that the power to declare them cast out or retained in it, was given to the same apostles, and their substitutes and successors. And therefore, after our Saviour hath breathed upon them, saying, Receive the Holy Ghost, John chapter 20, verse 22, he addeth in the next verse, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. By which words is not granted an authority to forgive or retain sins, simply and absolutely, as God forgiveth or retaineth them. Who knoweth the heart of man, and truth of his penitence and conversion, but conditionally to the penitent, and this forgiveness, or absolution, in case the absolved have but a feigned repentance, is thereby, without other act or sentence of the absolved, made void, and hath no effect at all to salvation, but, on the contrary, to the aggravation of his sin. Therefore the apostles and their successors are to follow but the outward marks of repentance, which appearing, they have no authority to deny absolution, and if they appear not, they have no authority to absolve. The same also is to be observed in baptism, for to a converted Jew or Gentile, the apostles had not the authority to deny baptism, nor to grant it to the unpenitent. But seeing no man is able to discern the truth of another man's repentance, further than by external marks taken from his words and actions, which are not subject to hypocrisy, another question will arise. Who is it that is constituted judge of those marks? And this question is decided by our Saviour himself. If thy brother, saith he, shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, 16, and 17 by which it is manifest that the judgment concerning the truth of repentance belonged not to any one man, but to the church, that is, to the assembly of the faithful, or to them that have authority to be their representant. But besides the judgment, there is necessary also the pronouncing of sentence, and this belonged always to the apostle, or some pastor of the church, as prolocutor. And of his Saviour speaketh in the eighth verse, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And conformable hereunto was the practice of St. Paul, where he saith, For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have determined already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, 4, and 5. That is to say, to cast him out of the church as a man whose sins are not forgiven. Paul here pronounces the sentence, but the assembly was first to hear the cause, for St. Paul was absent, and by consequence to condemn him. But in the same chapter, the judgment in such a case is more expressly attributed to the assembly. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, etc. With such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. Ibid, chapter 5, verse 11, 12. The sentence, therefore, by which a man was put out of the church was pronounced by the apostle or pastor, but the judgment concerning the merit of the cause was in the church. That is to say, as the times were before the conversion of kings, and men that had sovereign authority in the commonwealth, the assembly of the Christians dwelling in the same city, as in Corinth, in the assembly of the Christians of Corinth. End of chapter 42, part 1. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards.